association of uh, B.R. Sridhar Swami, Srila uh, Prabhupada's godbrother. I doubt if many of you have his books or have been exposed to his his presentation of Krishna consciousness. And I thought for a, for a few months I'd read his presentation. It's uh, very unique. I find it very inspiring, and I hope you do too. So I'm reading this evening by uh, Loving Search to the Lost Servant. And this is in regards to Srimad Bhagavatam. First, he quotes a verse from the Srimad Bhagavatam, 10th Canto, 14th Chapter, Text 8. Srimad Bhagavatam 10.14.8 gives us a most hopeful suggestion for all stages of life. Blame yourself and no one else. Maintain your appreciation for the Lord, seeing everything as His grace. At present we think our circumstances undesirable because they do not suit our present taste. But medicine may not always suit the taste of the patient. Still it is conducive to health. This verse is the highest type of regulation given by the Shastra. If you could follow this law, then in no time you will have a very good position. We must be careful not to blame the circumstances, but to appreciate that Krishna is behind everything. Krishna is my best friend. He is the background of everything. Everything is passing through his attentive eyes, so there cannot be any defect there. Even Srimati Radharani says, he is not to blame. This long separation from Krishna is only the outcome of my fate. He should not, he should not be blamed for this. Although outwardly it is admitted by all that he had cruelly left the gopis, Radharani is not prepared to blame Krishna. No wrong can be found in him. She thinks, there must be something wrong in me which has brought about this unfortunate situation. The competition between the groups of gopis in the service of Krishna is also harmonized in this way by Radharani. Krishnadas Kaviraj Goswami has explained this most important point. According to him, it is not that Radharani does not like any other party to serve Krishna in competition with her, but she feels that they cannot satisfy Krishna as well as she can. And this should be noted very carefully. She knows that they cannot give proper satisfaction to Krishna, so she cannot appreciate their trying to take her place. That is her contention. She thinks... If they could serve Krishna well and fully satisfy him, I would have no complaint. But they can't. And still, aggressively they come to serve. I can't tolerate this. <laughs> what a uh, selfless position, selflessness. Last week we didn't really address uh, Krishna Nam's question in regards to why would I want to have a relationship with somebody who put me in adverse circumstance? Is that more or less? More, why, more why, than less. Huh? More than less. More than less. <laughs> why would I want that? Why would I want a relationship with somebody who, who, who oftentimes puts me in distress? 
Now, uh, we're not going to go into the, the depth of understanding of the highest rasa between the gopis and Krishna. I don't know if I'm very competent to, to relate that. Other than to say that Krishna's separation from the gopis has to be seen in the light of his response to their question in the 10th canto after he left them in the middle of the night he just disappeared they became a little proud of their position God, you know, Krishna has invited us they became a little proud and there was some disturbance and, and he disappeared and when he came back they were filled with joy but there was a little tinge of anger there. You, you left us here. <laughs> and they posed some very interesting questions trying to basically have Krishna admit that he was acting cruelly. It was a very interesting exchange. If you want, you can read this in Krishna book or also in Srimad Bhagavatam. He responded to their inquiries, he responded to, I mean, basically they ask, which is worse? Someone that simply ignores others out of their personal self-interest or someone who, who does not fully reciprocate or someone who simply is indifferent. So they posed these questions. There was actually... Uh, the Acharyas point out that there was six or seven levels of inquiry there in their questions. And Krishna responded uh, one by one. But in the purports, the Acharyas point out that really the underlying current that Krishna brought forth at the end of those, of, of responding to their questions, was that his abandonment of them was to glorify their selfless service for the whole devotional community. No one is, is willing or has attained the willingness that the gopis have in total self-sacrifice for Krishna's pleasure. Now, of course, this is all hidden by this material energy. This internal exchange of love with the gopis pour out for Krishna's pleasure is hidden by Krishna's external potency due to our nature to exploit. So when we, when we hear of any exchanges, uh, the highest uh, relationship that we, we have knowledge of here, sex life, we automatically relate that to our exploitive tendencies in that regard. The Acharyas point out that the relationship between the Supreme Lord and his topmost servitors in, in this regard is like gold, whereas our exploitative mentality is just like iron. So Krishna 
his disappearing from the Gopis was to show that in spite of his harsh treatment, they were completely sold out to their loving relationship with him. So much so that when he left, they couldn't for a moment separate their existence from him. They immediately started looking everywhere. Where is Krishna? Asking every entity, have you seen Krishna? They immediately started to, to enact Krishna's pastimes, to imitate Krishna. Because this is how that they, they could get close to Krishna by Krishna Katha, by hearing and chanting about Krishna, by thinking of what Krishna does, the way Krishna looks, the way he smiles, his sidelong glances of love towards them. They immediately become immersed, immediately started to imitate Putana. One gopi would be Putana and another gopi would be Krishna sucking out the life of Putana. Or Trinavarta trying to carry Krishna away in a whirlwind. In this way, they were completely absorbed, even in their separation, in full Krishna consciousness. And this separation, although very difficult for us to comprehend, is, as explained by the great Acharyas, even more relishable than the meeting beyond my ability to explain, but Krishna, in answering the gopi's question, what kind of lover would leave? What kind of lover would abandon? What kind of lover would ignore? In answering that, he pointed out that his engagement with them in this way was simply for their glorification and enjoyment. In hearing that response, the gopis were fully satisfied. That little tinge of anger they had for being abandoned by Krishna was dissipated, and then Krishna proceeded with the gopis to enjoy the rasa dance. <laughs> so, we may ask, like you did last week, what? who would want that kind of a relationship with, with a lover, with a friend, uh, with a master, wherein there is some, wherein that person is not looking out for my topmost interest. But we must understand, as, as put forth here, there is never a time that Krishna, in dealing with any of us, ever is not looking out for our best interest. And Krishna does not discriminate in this regard. Even when he has to chastise or even kill those people that are opposed to him of a demoniac mentality who don't even recognize the Supreme, this is also done with their best interest in mind. So I want to read one other thing. Our guardian's eye. The environment is not dead. An overseer is there. Just as the sun is over our heads, every action is under our guardian's, guardian's eye. This comparison is given in the Rig Veda. 
Om Tad Vishnu Paramam Padam Sada Pashyanti Suraya Diviva Chakshur Adatam. We should approach any duty thinking, My guardian's eye is always diligently watching over me, seeing everything I am doing, and whatever is happening to me, I need not worry about this environment or circumstance. This is important. And keep this in mind when we read Bhagavad Gita this evening. That this consciousness left Arjuna. My guardian's eye is always diligently watching over me, seeing everything I am doing. And whatever is happening to me, I need not worry about this environment or circumstance. Srimad Bhagavatam says, don't worry about the environment. Do your duty. Concentrate fully on what you are doing and in no time you'll be relieved of the black box of the ego and will join in the universal flow of dancing, chanting, singing and rejoicing. You will again gain, you will gain entrance into the leela or pastimes of the Lord. We are all suffering from separate interest, clash, and reaction. Good and bad, pleasure and pain, happiness and distress. But there in the spiritual domain, everything is conscious and filled with happiness. So not only totally self-forgetfulness is required, but the whole goodwill of the Lord should be invited. We shall merge in the flow of the goodwill of the Lord. That is Vrindavan. Our guardians say, do this, and according to our capacity, we shall try to execute their order. And accepting that, what they say is really coming from Krishna, the more we are able to follow their instructions, the more benefit we shall accrue. Srimad Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita, the Vedas and Upanishads, and so many agents who represent divinity, are all helping us go back to our real home. At present, we are living in different stages of the consciousness of separate interest. But our guardians are all trying to take us into that higher plane of the dynamic movement, Leela, to enter into the pastimes of Krishna. There's an interesting verse in the Srimad Bhagavatam, the 11th canto, and there it's explained that if somebody is experiencing hunger, as they start to eat, three things happen. First thing, their hunger is satisfied. Second thing, they gain nourishment. And the more they eat, the more they become detached from eating. Right? Right? Similarly, as we engage in the practice of devotional service, hearing, chanting, associating, everything that we do for Krishna, Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu, Smaranam, all the nine processes of devotional service. As we engage in these processes, just as the hungry person experiences those three things when eating, similarly, as we engage in devotional service, we set our course in prema bhakti. We become 
determined, our intent becomes fixed to advance in loving relationship with Krishna. And we begin to experience and become satisfied in Krishna's presence. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. What's the result of this chanting? The result of this chanting is that we experience first Krishna's name, then Krishna's form, then his qualities, then his pastimes. As Sridhar says here, we enter into the Leela of Krishna and automatically, causelessly, we become detached from material enjoyment. Just as the hungry man, as he eats more and he's full, he no longer has a desire to eat. So similarly, as we engage in devotional service, we no longer have an enjoy, enjoyment desire separate from Krishna. So the more we engage in the process, just like the more we eat, the more and more satisfaction, the more detachment, and the more realization automatically come, step by step. So this, is, this has to be our intent. And when there is a separate interest, when there is something that is not aimed at fully immersing ourselves in pleasing Krishna, that should be our only intent, to please Krishna. So much so that we're willing to be totally self-sacrificing. We're willing to go to hell. We're seeing here at the end of the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is allowing Arjuna be, to become bewildered by his external potency. And Prabhupada makes that clear in his purport to the 29th verse. So Arjuna is speaking here in the 29th verse. My whole body is trembling, my hair is standing on end, my bow Gandiva is slipping from my hand. And my skin is burning. Purport. There are two kinds of trembling of the body and two kinds of standing of the hair on end. Such phenomena occurs either in great spiritual ecstasy or out of great fear under material conditions. There is no fear in transcendental realization. Arjuna's symptoms in this situation are out of material fear, namely loss of life. This is evident from other symptoms also. He became so impatient that his famous bow, Gandiva, was slipping from his hands. And because his heart was burning within him, he was feeling a burning sensation of the skin. All these are due to a material conception of life. I am now unable to stand here any longer. I am forgetting myself and my mind is reeling. I see only causes of misfortune, O Krishna. O killer of the Casey demon, I do not see how any good can come from killing my own kinsmen in this battle. Nor can I, my dear Krishna, desire any subsequent victory, kingdom, or happiness. O Govinda, of what avail to us are a kingdom, happiness, or even life itself, when all those for whom we may desire them are now arrayed on this battlefield? O Madhusadana, when teachers, fathers, sons, grandfathers, maternal uncles, fathers-in-law, 
grandsons, brothers-in-law, and other relatives are ready to give up their lives and properties and are standing before me, why should I wish to kill them, even though they might otherwise kill me? O maintainer of all living entities, I am not prepared to fight with them, even in exchange for the three worlds, let alone this earth. What pleasure will we derive from killing the sons of Deuterostra? Sin will overcome us if we slay such aggressors. Therefore, it is not proper for us to kill the sons of Deuterostra and our friends. What should we gain, O Krishna, husband of the goddess of fortune? And how can we be happy by killing our kinsmen? The point's already been made, and... We'll make it one last time, and then from here on, as we discuss Bhagavad Gita, let us consider Arjuna as conditioned by Krishna's external potency. A pure, unalloyed devotee of the Supreme Lord. He's in the topmost transcendental position. He is an eternal associate of the Lord who is never influenced by this material energy the way we are influenced by this material energy. This whole bewilderment of Arjuna, as specifically pointed out by Bhaktivedanta Swami in his purport, so much so that he is materially affected, has to be seen as Krishna's divine arrangement for our benefit. Arjuna is willing to accept this service of bewilderment for Krishna's pleasure and for our benefit out of his compassion, which is the nature of a devotee. You also note in Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, especially in the story of Jaya and Vijaya, two gatekeepers To please Krishna, they were willing to come to the material world as demons and be antagonistic because who can fight with Krishna on this plane? Who has enough power to fight with God in this domain where we're completely under the influence of his external potency? In order to give God a good fight because he also has this propensity sometimes, even his servants are willing to act, not only act, to be influenced by his bewildering material potency in such a way that they will fight with God as demons. Similarly here, we see Arjuna, Krishna's pure unalloyed devotee, willing, due to his compassion, for us, and his complete surrender to Krishna to be influenced by the material energy. From here out, we will consider him as we are, subjugated by Krishna's material potency. And we will hopefully at the end be able to adopt his mentality, which allows him to gain freedom from that subjugation. That's the whole intent of this discourse. That said, moving forward, 
If we look to Prabhupada's purport to the 36th verse, the very beginning, it's mentioned, according to Vedic injunctions, there are six kind of aggressors. These are Vedic injunctions. A poison giver, one who sets fire to the house, one who attacks with deadly weapons, one who plunders riches, one who occupies another land, another's land, one who kidnaps a wife. When we look at the Pandavas, they were given poison, yes? They were set, they were given a house made out of what? And it was set on fire. Attacked with deadly weapons. That's the only one I couldn't think of. Where they actually attacked. When they were, when they were, um, you know, hiding in the forest. Yeah. Yeah, but this is later on. I think the the point which your husband is making that before they yeah. they were sent to the forest. Didn't didn't they have to go and at one point um, get their weapons? They had them like hid under a tree. Yeah, but this is later on. The after the battle? No, it's not no, no, after no. the battle. No, it's before the battle, but it's after when the... While they were in exile. Yeah, so... Yeah. so and was it the hands? Was that at the hands of uh, Dutrarastra and his sons? I don't remember. All right, it. anyway, let's go on. I mean, that's the one I couldn't think of. Plundered riches? Well, they plundered their kingdom. Yeah. They took their whole kingdom. Occupied their land. Well, the kingdom was their land. So they not only took their royal throne and assembly houses and palaces, they also took all of their land. And how much land did they were they willing to give them? None. What was it? Wasn't not, there some not little... Even a pin, like not even a pin head's worth of land were they willing. <laughs> and what's the sixth one? One who kidnaps a wife. How did the how did the Kurus kidnap Drupadi? Disrobing her, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Was that kidnapping? Through what? They kidnapped her. Yes. Through what? Through cheating. Yeah. Cheating and gambling. They kidnapped her, and Eudistir had to give her up. They they stole her away from him. By cheating. Of these six, five of them are there. That's pretty much a, a pretty good justification for any Kshatriya to go to war. Considering you should immediately kill a person that does any one of these to you. Gives you poison, sets fire to your house, attacks you with deadly weapons, plunders riches, occupies land, or kidnaps the wife. According to political, the Vedas of political activity, there should be an immediate reaction to these things. But Arjuna doesn't, he goes to a different level. He immediately introduces the Dharma Shastras. Now, whenever there is a, a difference, between the information that's given in the various Vedas. Dharma, religious responsibility, takes precedent 
over other worldly Vedic direction like the political reactions to these six items. So he tries to refute this call to arms, this call for battle, which is there in the Vedas with Dharmic direction that one should never kill their superior and the, or their relatives. So that's his argument. Clever, good. It shows Arjuna's level of compassion. Because, why? Bhishma's on the other side. Dronacharya's on the other side. Dronacharya's Arjuna's guru. Bhishma's like his father. His cousin brothers are like his brothers. So he immediately comes forward. Even if they are aggressors, even if they're aggressors, if we slay such aggressors, and it's obvious they're the aggressors, they're definitely aggressors, but it's not proper for us to kill the sons of Dhritarashtra and our friends. What should we gain, O Krishna, husband of the goddess of fortune? And how could we be happy by killing our own kinsmen? O Janardhan, although these men their hearts overtaken by greed see no fault in killing one's family or quarreling with friends. Why should we, who can see the crime in destroying a family, engage in these acts of sin? With the destruction of dynasty, the eternal family tradition is vanquished, and thus the rest of the family becomes involved in irreligion. The point Arjuna's making here is when you kill the family elders, the knowledge they have of religious practice, all the various sacrifices are going to be neglected. Now in this battle, all, all the great leaders of both families are present. And it's obvious most of them are going to die. Arjuna knows this. So therefore, all the, the religious traditions that are followed, the various sacrifices for the purification of the children, for the birth of good children, for the protection of the forefathers, for the deliverance of forefathers who may have not acted in their, best, in their own best interests, can be delivered by, their, by those coming later if they're offered prasadam. When irreligion is prominent in the family, so no, not only by killing the forefathers are the religious traditions neglected, but let's go on. The women become abused. Verse 40. The women of the family become polluted and from the degradation of womanhood, O descendant of Vrishni, comes unwanted progeny. An increase in, increase in unwanted population certainly causes hellish life both for the family of those and for those who destroy the family tradition. The ancestors of such corrupt families fall down. Why? Because they're not offered sacrifice or sacrifice is not offered on their behalf. 
because the performance of offering them food and water are entirely stopped by the evil deeds of those who destroy the family tradition and thus give rise to unwanted children, all kinds of community projects and family welfare activities are devastated. O Krishna, maintainer of the people, I have heard by disciplic succession that those who destroy family traditions dwell always in hell. I mean, Arjuna is really trying to to make his 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 position clear to Krishna. That's why my Muslims, you know, fight America. It's just exactly on this point. Which point is that? That the, how to say the the destroy family tradition. Yeah. And because America comes and uh, and change everything. Right. All the religious values go to hell. Mm. Interesting point. Alas, how strange it is that we are preparing to commit greatly sinful acts driven by the desire to enjoy royal happiness. We are intent on killing our own kinsmen. Better for me if the sons of Dhritarashtra, weapons in hand, were to kill me unarmed and unresisting on the battlefield. Sanjaya said, Arjuna, having thus spoken on the battlefield, cast aside his bow and arrows and sat down on the chariot, his mind overwhelmed by grief. What's his grief? What's creating Arjuna's grief? Material attachments. He's attached. To their bodies. He's attached, yes. He's, there's his whole... This, the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita is very important for us because until we, until our faults are fully recognized, how can we ever come to the point of sincere and serious spiritual inquiry? Arjuna is experiencing material grief. And his grief and his suffering is created by his attachment. And even though he is able to veil that at material attachment expertly in religious tradition and scriptural regulation and he's very good I mean read this people read this first chapter of Bhagavad Gita and they say immediately I agree with Arjuna (laughs) I know when I read Bhagavad Gita I immediately said I'm with him (laughs) what is this God that wants to get him to fight what is this all about this is this is I'm with I'm with Arjuna here. Isn't that our natural tendency due to material conditioning? I'm on his side. He's got it all right. God's got it all wrong. Yeah? Isn't that the way we think? Our material mentality is such, our attachments are such, we immediately side with Arjuna's material attachments. We immediately take our sides in this battle between material attachments and spiritual life, our spirit, our true nature. And starting next week, we're going to dive into 
What's the nature of spirit? And why is spirit different from matter? And why, why, why is having those material attachments based on bodily designation, based on family affection, why ultimately will that never satisfy us? And it seems so cruel. It seems so cruel. But we do not find in the compassionate dealing of Krishna's devotees, which is coming directly from Krishna, we do not see anything but the topmost compassion for all living entities. But their compassion is based on spiritual realization, not on mundane affection. The directions given, even the, even the political directions of the Vedas, that these six aggressors should have immediately be killed. Immediately. No trials. <laughs> if somebody comes and burns your house down, kill them. If they take your wife, if they take your wealth. This, it, these are laws of, of, of social etiquette that the Vedas recommend. Unless your guru does it. Oh, then we go to a higher level. A higher level of understanding. The Vedas are vast. They give us knowledge at every level. And without the bona fide spiritual master simply picking up the law books of the Vedas or picking up the dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna or trying to dive into the understanding of Bhagavatam, it's going to be very difficult for us. Someone needs to give us direction according to our the time, place, and person. We all are in a different time, a different place, and we're different individuals. And the position of the bona fide spiritual master as Krishna's external potency Guru Tattva. Guru Tattva. He's a Tattva. He's an energy of Krishna in that relationship. Let me explain how much of an energy of Krishna he is. Sridhar Swami, who we read from earlier, explains that he was in the habit of when he went and his spiritual master, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, spoke, he would take notes. He'd regularly take notes. And in taking the notes, he was able to, you know, to, to of course, recall all the different things that were said. One time there was one lecture given by Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati and at that time Sridhar Swami didn't have paper and pen. He didn't take notes. After the lecture Bhaktisiddhanta went up to Sridhar, knowing that he always took notes of all of his lectures, and said, Did you get that? Did you write that down? I need to know what I said. 
Guru Tattva, energy. So much so that even the spiritual master acting as guru in his in in his position as devotee wants to hear what he presented. Prabhupada, same thing. Observed by his servants studying his books. He'd be reading his book. He just translated it. He just dictated it. And then he'd go back and study it. And what did he say about his dictation? I am just I am just repeating what Krishna is dictating. Mm-hmm. Krishna is doing the dictating. That's Guru Tattva. That's Krishna's energy coming through the bona fide spiritual master. He has two capacities. He's the devotee. He's by his example showing how to be devotee. And he's also in his capacity of guru. He is representing Krishna externally for our benefit. This can be bewildering for young and experienced devotees. It can be bewildering for old experienced devotees also. It takes some level of intelligence to be able to understand the position of guru and to see everything in proper perspective. To be able to see his absolute position and also his relative position. To see the principles that he puts forward by his instructions as being of the topmost importance but the details being specifically administered to the disciple according to time, place, and person. So now we have a framework from which to go forward. We have, we have, we, we are, we have been given an understanding of Krish, of Arjuna's divine bewilderment by the Lord's external energy. The same bewildering potency that makes us try to enjoy this world through exploitation or renounce this world through renunciation. Exploitation and renunciation, two sides of the same coin of personal self-interest whether we're trying to enjoy it or trying to renounce it so we don't suffer as a consequence of it, it's two sides of the same coin. The position of devotional service is the position of of fully giving without any expectation. So your question last week was centered around why would I? Because why? Because Arjuna had some self-interest. Why would I want to do that? That's exactly what Arjuna's saying. Why would I want that? Why would I want a God that would put me in this position? And in fact, the Acharyas point out here in these verses, in referring to Krishna as Janardhan, Janardhan destroys by referring to him by this name, Arjuna is saying, you kill them. 
That's what you do anyway. You're God. And because you're God, you don't have any sin. Don't ask me to do it. I'm going to suffer. Arjuna was referring to him by that name to bring out the point that, please, Krishna, if you want this killing done, you do it yourself. If I do it, I'll have to suffer sinful reaction. So you do it. Again, some self-interest on Arjuna's part due to the bewilderment. I'll stop there. Any questions? By the use of the term Janardhan, both Baladev Vidyabhushan and Vishwanath Chakravarti point out in using that word, he's making a plea to Krishna, don't engage me in this killing, you can do this yourself. You, you already take everyone's life and you do so without incurring sin. If I do it, what's he say at the end of the verse? Engage in these acts of sin. Is that clear? Anything else? Thank you so much. Go ahead. Sorry, I have a very brief question. So, um, talking about, you know, engaging in, in acts of violence or killing or warfare. So when Prabhupada came and, you know, Westerners and they were, you know, young hippie people that first, you know, were the first, I guess, people here to be exposed to Bhagavad Gita as it is. Right. So they, they must have, I mean, you know, that was like a whole age of, you know, that was a whole movement of nonviolence and peace and, you know, um, protest against the Vietnam War. So that must have been, I mean, I'm just thinking, I've never really considered it before, how this message must have initially, you know, like at first, you know, their first exposure to it. My first exposure was like that. Yeah. I was like, wow, yes. Bhagavad Gita, especially when I read Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, you know, saying like, yeah, Arjuna. my mind was saying this spiritual knowledge is tremendous. I agree with everything here, but this little point I'm having a little yeah. difficulty yeah. with. And that's, we all have, we all have conceptions when we come to Krishna consciousness that we have difficulty overcoming. Yeah. But as we chant, if we are sincere, these, these misconceptions that we have will gradually dissipate. Sometimes they don't dissipate. Sometimes our misconceptions put us in a very awkward position. I had god brothers of mine who left the movement when they read Prabhupada's purports to the fifth canto. Wherein the explanation of the moon, where the moon is and the sun is and the distances. and They were like, wait, my science, I... Take science over Veda. Right. Yeah. Okay, well that means you're going to take your empiric senses, which are imperfect, over Krishna's perfect presentation of this knowledge of his material universe as given to us by realized people who, who realize these things. We have to find a way to harmonize it and if still we cannot understand, we accept as much as we can. What was it Sridhar says? This is very important. And this is very important in our preaching of Krishna consciousness. And unless we convey this sense, 
then we will be seen as a dogmatic, fanatical group. What does he say? Our guardians say, do this, and according to our capacity, we shall try to execute their order. We must convey this in the spreading of Krishna consciousness. According to your capacity, you take up this chanting and hearing and associating and taking prasadam and following a codice. Prabhupada said to his young disciples, if I told you all the rules and regulations, you'd faint. We're not ready. Many people are not ready for all the rules and regulations. But they're ready for Krishna and they want Krishna. And eventually, Krishna even says in the 59th verse of the second chapter, Visaya Vinivartante, Niyaharashya Dehida. We may be able to restrain our senses out of acceptance of good guidance, but the taste to enjoy due to conditioning may still be there. That taste to enjoy sometimes even overcomes our, the good intelligence that is being conveyed from the lips of the pure devotee. The senses sometimes get the betterest, even of advanced devotees. But when their advancement is at a stage where they're tasting a higher taste, Krishna says, What's the verse? Parandrasthva Vartante. When there's actually a taste of spiritual enjoyment, then giving these things up is easy. When the hungry man eats to his full satisfaction, no desire to eat. When the devotee engages in the practices of sadhana bhakti, Step by step, the desires for material enjoyment automatically fade away. Let's stress devotional engagement. If we do that in our spreading of this Krishna consciousness, then everyone, we open the doors to everyone. I'll stop there. <laughs> Thank you so very much. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.